Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. everybody and welcome to another episode of RetroTube, the show where two best friends watch crappy old television shows from the 60s to the 80s and then talk about it in the hopes of sounding vaguely knowledgeable about our show of choice. This week it's my turn again and I am leaving the 60s spy scene behind and taking you to 1970s America to follow the adventures of the ultimate in grumpy superheroes. It's the Incredible Hulk. Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The creature is wanted for a murder he didn't commit. David Banner is believed to be dead. And he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Running over five seasons from 1977 to 1982, The Incredible Hulk tells the story of David Banner, a genius nuclear physicist who accidentally overdoses on gamma radiation and turns into a giant green monster every time he's mildly inconvenienced. Starring Bill Bixby as the ordinarily mild-mannered and super-brainy fugitive David Bruce Banner, and Lou Ferrigno as the mean green rage machine, The Incredible Hulk was developed by Kenneth Johnson, a chap who wanted to make a superhero show that could feasibly have taken place in the real world. Featuring a plaintive theme tune written by Joe Harnell, and some rather intense narration by Ted Cassidy, the original choice to play the Hulk, and best known to all of us as Lurch from the Addams Family. The Incredible Hulk was a beautiful combination of The Fugitives and any one of a dozen crime and mystery shows, all brought together with that old Stanley magic. As a child, Luther Ignos Hulk gave me nightmares, but rediscovering it as an adult, it turns out that The Incredible Hulk is one of my favourite shows by far. But Adam, had you ever seen the show before? What were your memories or preconceptions of it, and did you enjoy the episodes we saw today? I haven't seen The Hulk in a long, long time. It's one that used to be on TV probably in the early 80s, I guess. And we had it on all the time. And we had a black and white TV back in those days, so I had no idea that The Hulk was green. To me, he was just a normal-sized man who, when he became angry, turned into a slightly larger normal-sized man with oh, muscles. right. That's, uh, <laughs> that's really, that's really going to make the entire show very confusing for you. <laughs> Yeah, it it um it well it didn't because I was I was at that age where I just took everything on face value. So it's like, oh yeah, it's the Incredible Hulk. It's it's about the man who gets really strong and wears this weird shaggy wig when he gets really angry and all these clothes tear. Yes. And then one day we were at my grandpa's house and my grandpa was quite wealthy and he had a colour TV and it's like, whoa, the Incredible Hulk's green. <laughs> I don't know why that's such a funny thing. <laughs> and in my own unique way, I, I got it. I was probably five or six. I got it into my head that the reason there was colour TV was in order to see that the Hulk was green. I think that's right. It was to be able to watch snooker. Probably, obviously. obviously we, yeah, yeah. On black and white TV, we struggled. And to see the Incredible Hulk was green. Yeah, it had to be explained to me that colour TV wasn't just for those two things. That Lies. it was just to watch everything in colour. Yeah, it was exactly <laughs> for snooker and the Incredible Hulk. Those two <laughs> that things was it, only. Yes, <laughs> and it was years and years before I realised as well that he was 
based on a comic book thing. I growing up, I was never a big comic book person. I was much more into um, TV, mm. which is why I'm here now today, speaking to you, <laughs> doing this. <laughs> yes, it's like therapy for us, really. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I remember once a friend of my mum's son gave me a second-hand Marvel comic. Uh, and if there's any Marvel experts out there, they might know exactly which issue it is. I can still picture the cover vividly. It's The cover is a shoe coming down and there's various ants underneath about to be crushed and Ant-Man who is going, no, don't crush me with your big shoe. So I remember the cover and on the back there was an advert for licorice mm. and you could buy this licorice for 3p i thought at the time that you bought the whole collection for 3p but i think it was 3p per piece of licorice so you got all these different you got the sticks of licorice you got licorice pipes you got those kind of spirals of licorice with a jelly in the middle a whole range of licorice i spent hours fascinated by this advert for licorice i didn't really understand adverts back then so i just assumed that this comic was telling me about licorice but it gives you some idea of how engaged by the actual content of the, the comic book I was. <laughs> yes, that does sound 100% you. So growing up, my action-adventure heroes were Doctor Who, Luke Skywalker, and in literary, literary fiction, Bilbo Baggins. So I was a fan of somebody who didn't use their big muscles to solve things and at school it was always like the big rough kids who were the ones that were like yeah i'm iron man i'm superman i'm going to throw you across the playground and that kind of thing so like the big muscular heroes and he-man and that kind of thing were always the domain of the rough kids and then us weedier kids we were into doctor who and luke skywalker and that kind of thing i was never a comic book person right uh, the incredible hulk to me was just another high concept tv show right well, that's taken us to the hour. It's been really nice talking to you about it. <laughs> I haven't watched this in at least three decades, but it seemed really familiar. Bill Bixby looked really familiar and Lou Ferrigno looked really familiar in his weird fuzzy wig that he wears and the, yeah. just the, the texture of the green paint and all that kind of stuff and the whole mournful the whole mournful feel of the whole thing. It's quite a glum and rather serious-seeming drama. Well, I mean, you say that, but... Lou Ferrigno turns, well, it, it, it is a giant rage machine. He is. With body paint that comes off. I'm not 100% sure how seriously anybody can take this. <laughs> also, he's wearing a wig made from yak hair. I don't really get glum from it. That music, though. Na, 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 na. I mean, it is quite plaintive, I will grant you. However, um, on one of the DVD extras in the box set, there is an interview with someone in the production team or on the writing team. I can't remember. I've only, I, I saw it once about six years ago. She said that there were unofficial lyrics to The Lonely Man, which is the actual title of the theme tune. And they would always sing, I am the Hulk, I rip my clothes off. And she couldn't remember the rest of the words, but that was enough. That was enough for me. So I can't actually hear the theme tune without the <laughs> I think also Bill Bixby plays it utterly straight. Oh, he does. Like there's never any winking to camera. No, not not even a one. Which is which is great because he was kind of more known as a comedy actor. Oh, really? Up until this point. Yeah, he'd been in um, My Favourite Martian and The Courtship of Eddie's Father, um, a couple of Elvis films. In quite a lot of episodes you do see he has moments where his funny side comes out and he does really good impressions and stuff. And he was a very, by all accounts, I mean, obviously I don't know, um, but he was quite, quite an intense actor and always took every single role very, very seriously. Like he was in a crime fighting show in the early mid 70s called The Magician, where, shockingly enough, he played a magician and he <laughs> trained to be a magician wow. for the role. So, like, I don't think there's, there's anything that I could possibly like more about Bill Bixby. He's a magician and he's bumpy. I, I think his seriousness comes across and I think it, it really grounds the show because although it doesn't have that broad brushstroke of other versions where the Hulk is an actual monster and he's this big CGI thing that's just, you know, not human dimensions at all. It's 
still on paper a daft show, so I think his intensity and his seriousness really grounds it, and I think that's sort of what, what I was sort of connecting to in terms of it being quite a... Because he gets the loneliness across very well and that sort of despair and his, his isolation of having to live this life wandering, wandering from city to city, making up new names beginning with B. <laughs> in this first one we looked at, he was... David Blaine. David Blaine, yes. That's so right. speaking of him being a magician. In a later one, I noticed he plays David Bellamy. Yes, he does. Has he got a label to prove it? Yeah, Bill Bixby was actually Kenneth Johnson's first choice for playing David Banner. Before we go any further, we really need to talk about the name because obviously in the comics, he is Bruce Banner. Yes. But in the show, he is David Bruce Banner. This has confused a lot of people over the years. Is this because anyone having an alliterating name would just be ridiculous and completely unrealistic for somebody who Bill Bixby plays to have that an alliterating name? That is exactly name? right, yeah. No one has alliterating names. It's true, it's true. That's exactly why they changed it, um, because uh, Kenneth Johnson didn't think that anybody in real life had an alliterative name. <laughs> Let's cast Bill Bixby. And, oh! <laughs> and Bill Bixby was like, right, no, that would be... That would be stupid. Imagine having a name beginning with two Bs. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that conversation actually happened, but I like to think that it did. We well, just gave him a very hard stare till he turned a funny colour. <laughs> His eyes went white. <laughs> yes. We watched uh, two episodes. We we watched three. We'll talk about the third one at the very end. But officially, for the purposes of the podcast, we watched two episodes. One called "Of Guilt, Models, and Murder." Yes, and the other we did. one, the delightful title "Hulk Breaks Las Vegas." Yeah, he, and and it's literally true. I chose the first one because of the guest star, because I know he's one of your favourites. He is one of my favourites, and I chose the second one because it is more of a standard kind of Hulk episode, but with a a nice little mystery to it as well. I think it's quite important to to mention Jack Colvin as Jack McGee, who is really a perfect foil to. Bill Bixby as David Banner, even though they don't really spend a great deal of time in the same episode together, I think I think they are a really, really well matched pair. Yes, it's sort of by design they can never really properly interact. Do you want to, for people who haven't seen it, explain who, or shall I explain who? Yes, you please do because that's that that's how the show works. I don't know if you ever listened to it before, but you, <laughs> if I choose choose the show, you tell us what it's about. This is an element that I have uh, no memory of from when I was little. Is the element of the antagonistic uh, journalist who mm. apparently doesn't learn from experience. So he is uh, an investigative journalist who looks like a cross between Tom Petty and uh, Christopher Walken. Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, that's a really good shout, Tom Petty and Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The hybrid Tom Petty, Christopher Walken. He's trying to get the dirt on the Hulk, this seven-foot green monster who's rampaging across America. And he wants to do an expose, and this will make his name as a journalist, and it will make him a fortune, this article about the Hulk. He's convinced that the Hulk has committed a murder. I think that murder is David Banner. Yes. In the pilot episode, David Banner and his scientist partner, Elena Marks, are doing a lot of research into how adrenaline affects strength during, you know, when when the, there are particular moments in a person's life where they go through a really uh, heightened emotional time, they mm. somehow manage to have way more strength than they actually have. Um, right, of course. As part of this experiment, they, they interview an awful lot of people. A woman who saves her son from a burning car by lifting the car up. I can't even remember what the other ones are because it's a while since I've seen the pilot because it's just way too emotional. But we find out that before this research starts, David Banner uh, was married to a lady named Laura and they were very much in love. And unfortunately, Laura died in a car crash that David was also in and he couldn't save her because she was trapped in the car and he tried to lift the car up so that she could get out, but he couldn't. Um, He survived and she didn't. So that's why he started the research, because he wanted to know how come other people can do things like that. But when he needed to, he couldn't. And they find out it's something to do with sunspots or oh, really? it's, it's some total pseudoscience that is explained very earnestly. So you believe 
that it's actually scientific. Something to do with sunspots and the gamma radiation from the sunspots. Because he's like, hey, I'm a nuclear physicist, I'll just uh, do a bit of experimentation with some gamma radiation. I'm going to sit myself in this chair and zap myself with a bit of gamma and then I'll be a bit stronger. He tries doing this and he tries it about three times and then he decides that the, the machine's on the blink. But he doesn't realise he's given himself a massive, massive overdose of gamma radiation. And on the way home, he crashes his car and it's raining and he's trying to change a tyre and he cuts his hand and he gets really angry and boom, he turns into the Incredible Hulk. That's what happens. And right. then him and Elena start researching into into the creature and they're the only two who know about it but jack mcgee during the episode turns up and starts asking a lot of questions because he's he wants to know what what they're doing and neither david banner nor elena marks will speak to him because they don't like the national register it's a it's a rag magazine it's basically like somebody working for the sun i think (gasps) which is which is swearing i know but yeah it's basically that kind of a level and and they won't speak to him in the pilot episode, there is a fire at the lab. Elena unfortunately dies during the fire because she gets squished by something. And although the Hulk carries her off and you know tries to help her, she dies anyway. Obviously, David has to go off into hiding trying to find some sort of a cure. So they know that Elena's died, but because they can't find David Banner, they think they just presume that he was burnt too much in the fire and nobody you know, they can't, they can't ever find his remains. So that is why Jack McGee thinks that the Hulk has killed both of them, when actually that wasn't the case at all. He'd end up being the property of the government and he'd be a lab rat before he knew it and he, and he doesn't want that for himself. He, so he that's, doesn't fancy that at that's all. That's why Jack McGee is following David Banner around the country. Not purposely, because he hasn't made the connection. It's one of those TV contrivances where yes. the, the people always seem to end up in the same place, in the same adventure. It's like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> the opening titles are very dramatic and histrionic, and it took me a couple of viewings to notice the big red warning light that says danger is framed so that it says anger at first, and then reframed so that it says danger so it says anger danger yeah i like that that's that's, that's nice. nicely subtle so on to the first episode please could you tell us what this episode is about this one is of guilt models and murder so the guest star this week is jeremy brett Yay! tv sherlock holmes that's right who is indeed one of my favorite actors yes and i can see why because he yeah, is extremely watchable he loves chewing the scenery. I mean, he's essentially playing the same part, but it's also very, very different. Yes. And he's one of those actors who he plays Jeremy Brett, but he imbues each role with enough subtlety that they are actually different, even though on the surface he's just playing a very well-spoken and somewhat intense Englishman. That's it. That's that's exactly who his character is. The opening kind of hook of this is that David comes round. He's in a mansion. He's been the Hulk. He's got a bit of a Hulk hangover. He's going, oh... I'm never drinking again. A Hulk over. And he sees a, a dead body on the floor. And the whole room's been smashed up, so clearly he's been doing his Hulk thing. And this model is sprawled on the floor by the window. And he is convinced, or he suspects strongly, that he has possibly killed her in his rampage. He runs away and he receives on the news that eyewitnesses do indeed confirm that a large man was seen rampaging through the house and murdered this model who was in the room standing by the window and he he remembers through flashback that he was walking past and he saw her shouting for help so he went into to go to her aid and he somehow became the hulk it goes on from there and we find out that jeremy brett's character is a uh he's the owner of a very large cosmetics company Right, okay, yes. He has several models on his books and she was his his favourite model at the time. And his, she was his wife as well or his, his, girlfriend. his partner? Yeah, she, his girlfriend. She'd been the face of the cosmetics company for five years and she was his girlfriend during the time that David believes that the Hulk has killed Terry, the lady. There are flashbacks to the pilot episode where Elena repeatedly tells David that the creature won't kill because David Banner won't kill in the same way that a person who is hypnotised cannot be hypnotised to kill if they're not already predisposed to killing 
it's meant to provide David some comfort, but because he doesn't remember, he just thinks that Elaine is wrong. Or maybe he also suspects that deep down he is capable of killing, which I, I guess none of us really know for certain until we're faced with that choice. I don't know. I think out of the, I think out of the two of us, one of us is probably a little bit more capable of it. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't put it past me either. <laughs> <laughs> you should see me if someone steals a chip off my plate. I have. It's not pretty. So I think my favourite bit in the episode is the bit near the beginning where Jeremy Brett is giving a press conference to the police because his partner has just been murdered and he is chewing the scenery. So I said that Bill Bixby takes it absolutely seriously. Jeremy Brett is doing anything but. He's having a great time playing this role. He really is. She, she used to joke that she could scream her head off and that no one in the neighbourhood would pay any attention. Last night she decided to prove it. You mean to say that when she screamed she really didn't need help? Not then. It was like the boy who cried wolf. She was just joking. Anyway, she was by the window shouting when we heard a howling outside. It was the dogs. They'd spotted an intruder and were going after him. Then he moved toward the front door, but it was locked. And it was solid two-inch oak. He tore it to pieces. We heard him coming down the hall, growling. And then he came in. It was massive, at least seven feet. And very, very angry. He was incredibly strong. He smashed a marble statue. He looked around and saw Terry and started toward her. This time her screams were for real. Terry tried to hide behind a display case. He crossed to it, looked at Terry through the glass and then reached up and smashed it to the ground. I knew she carried a snorkel in her handbag, but would she use it? My note is Jack McGee is lapping this up. This story is very far-fetched. I'm genuinely surprised that the police bought any of it. During his press conference, when he's dis- describing this man who has rampaged through the, his house, he fails to mention that he is green, even though that's c- kind of one of the primary characteristics. Uh, and yet people like the police refer to him as the creature even though Jeremy Brett has just described a large man. Yes. If the Hulk had rampaged through my house, I'd be shaking them by the shoulders going, but he was green, he was green. (laughs) (laughs) And he smelt of yak. He smelt of yak, oh my God. (laughs) You really would. (laughs) Look, he's all over me, I'm all green now. He shed it all over the settee. It's going to take months to clean that up. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But importantly, what he didn't say was that the creature had white eyes. I'll repeat that. He didn't say that the creature had white eyes. Another note I have is that Bill is very slight. Yes. I hadn't really noticed because I was four when I watched it before and all grown-ups look big. But, yeah, he's a very slight man. He's a very slight man. He's large head and very sort of small and scrawny, which I, I guess he was partly chosen for contrast with their bodybuilder, Lou Ferrigno. Yes, I think so. He's particularly despairing in this episode because he... He does think he's killed someone, so the first half certainly is does have that seriousness because he's he's walking around and he really he's really having some existential angst and doubt and <laughs> I'm um... sorry. Broken Heather. I've, I've finally sorry. done it. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. 
every time I calm down, I can just hear you saying he's like <laughs> <laughs> And he just sets me up again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh dear, I was not expecting this. <laughs> Go on, do carry on. Just, oh, leave, just leave me to giggle by myself. <laughs> okay. It's fine. Well, me talking about his his despair and loneliness it doesn't quite work with you chortling in the background. <laughs> I can't breathe! <laughs> Bankers. I'm surprised they called the day considering last night. The fact is, I called them. Business helps me to take my mind off it. I hope you understand. We know that Jeremy Brett is the villain because he's well spoken and he's English and in. And that just equals baddie. And although we don't actually see him commit the murder, we're so certain that he is the villain that this is essentially an episode of Columbo. It basically is, yeah. Except. With a sad werewolf instead of Columbo. That's exactly what it is. It, it does feel like a Columbo episode, to be fair. It does, yeah. So he has to inveigle his way into... It's like it's Columbo's day off. Um, uh, they so... sent the denim crusader in his place. Yes, they did. I like the idea that that's his name. <laughs> these enormous flares. In all of these episodes, David Banner's trousers. Yes, I, I, am, I am okay to talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite scared of the Hulk when I was little. And because watching it now, he's just a big softy and you cheer when he turns up. But yes. there was always that tension when I was watching because he, and you said that he gave you nightmares. And I think he, I, I found it quite scary as well. And it was always just a moment when it w- was relief because, oh, he can finally get himself out of mortal peril. So that's all right. He's strong and he'll escape from this thing. But at the same time, it's like, oh, when, no, don't upset him. He's going to go. He's going to turn any minute. Don't make him angry. You won't like him when he's angry. He's made this very clear very, from the outset. Yes. Uh, you haven't watched the opening credits. <laughs> so I still had that residual leftover thing from 40 years ago. Of a little bit of anxiety. A bit nervous when, like, when he was going to change. He's like, oh, no. I know, because he doesn't, he doesn't change until quite late on in the episode. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's quite formulaic. There are two Hulk outs in every episode. Right, okay. Because the story involves so much flashback of the Hulk over sort of like three three different versions of the same tale. There's only one actual Hulk out sequence in this, and it's right at the end. So we are kind of waiting the whole episode for someone to make David angry. And nobody really makes him very angry because he, he goes over to Jocelyn's house to try and find out what's actually going on. And he instantly gets a job as his valet. He gets some lovely clothes. He has the world's easiest job interview. He really, really does. A lady with very large glasses asks him if he's ever been a valet before. He says yes to a doctor of some kind who is unfortunately deceased. And then Jeremy Brett just turns up and says, no, it's fine. Hire him. He'll do. He's the one. He'll be okay. I, I can see his genes from here. <laughs> it's basically, <laughs> basically the attitude. Yes, he gets a job as a uh, valet and he dresses up all nice and smart and he's not very subservient. He just goes around asking lots of questions. It's set up as a psychological cat and mouse because we know that Jeremy Brett's character, Jocelyn, mm. actually recognises... David Banner from the scene of the murder. He he passed him in his Porsche. So this is why he hires him instantly. He knows that he's only hiring him to keep an eye on him, keep an eye on him and find out what he knows. And of course, David Banner is only taking the job so he can get in and have a look at Jeremy Brett and find out what he knows. So there's this kind of unspoken cat and mouse going on. And they're both the cat and the mouse at the same yes, time. Yes, simultaneously. Yes. So that makes it quite fun. There's lots of subtext to it. No one says anything out loud, really. It's just a lot of subtext. There's a very nice moment, which is not really anything to do with the plot, but not long after David gets the job, the old valet calls and asks to speak to Jocelyn. Jocelyn tells David to go and get himself a broom. Mm. While he's on the phone, there's a really nice camera angle. It films Jeremy Brett on the phone from a reflection in a pair of sunglasses that are on the table next to the coffee. Oh, yes, that was good. Yes, I I remember that. that, I thought that was very nice. Mm. I do like the idea of Jeremy Brett telling somebody else to get a brew. (laughs) Go on, lad. Get get yourself a brew, lad. Go on. 
And we also have a late 70s glamour shoot, which... Is a bit cringy. The 1970s was an alien world, wasn't it? A little problem with back payments, nothing serious. Met us a new employee. I certainly hope not. We're shooting some test layouts on our new line in cosmetics today. Would you like to watch? Very much. That's good. Okay, over there we go. Again, one more time. That's good. Change. Change. That's good. Okay, a little lower. Hold it, hold it. You're fine. That's good, that's good. Stunning, isn't she? Keep going. Change. She's very pretty. It was so different. Yes. They're doing these kung fu moves on the lawn in their yeah. martial arts outfits and the the model who is the new face of the cosmetics. She has enormous hair. It needs planning permission. <laughs> uh. Yes. Gigantic hair. And it's n- not at all flattering. She doesn't suit that hair in the slightest. Uh, no, she really, really doesn't. Or indeed the pyjama things that she's wearing i mean mm, her red it's not pajamas. it's not it's not a gate it really is basically just big pyjamas it's not mm. you know not an actual karate thing at all so this poor woman looks looks ridiculous with her her tiny little round face and this massive thing on her head that's supposed <laughs> to be hair yes <laughs> it was probably left over yak <laughs> <laughs> So this episode, me saying that it starts off quite serious, it does get very silly. It does get very silly very quickly. Our inquisitive valet takes her into his confidence and she's quite scared and says, oh, actually, he did murder the the previous uh, face of Jocelyn Cosmetics, who I'm replacing as the top model. It was him, but I'm too scared to go to the police because he'll kill me. Yes. David Banner says, oh, don't worry, I'll protect you. Come on, let's run around. Don't worry, I'm I'm secretly the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, so we'll be fine. So Jeremy Brett's henchman comes up with his gun and tries to kill them, but they run away and they escape and he drops her off at her friend's apartment so she can hide out and he goes to the car wreckers yard where the previous valet is now working. Or oh, he's hiding out there. He's hiding out there. Because it's owned by his brother. The valet, the reason the valet quit suddenly was was because he was an eyewitness to the murder and he knows that it wasn't really the Hulk that did the killing. The Hulk was just yes. going in to save the day. Yes. It's a 1970s action show and it's set in a car wrecking yard. So, oh. Oh, we know what's going to happen. Yeah, we know what's going to happen. David goes in and he speaks to Sanderson and he says... Sheila's going to go to the police, you should go with her, and then the police will believe you, and Jocelyn will be arrested. Mm-hmm. And the valet says, you're crazy if you think that Sheila's going to go to the police. And Sheila walks in and says that Sanderson's right, because she's the one who killed Terry. Yeah, t- plot twist. Dun, dun, dun. I actually didn't see it coming as well. Call me naive. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? I was convinced by her. By her uh, her little round head quivering under the weight of it. <laughs> Oh, bless. <laughs> as soon as we find out that Sheila's really the baddie, Jocelyn kind of turns into more of her henchman than mm. being the, the main person. The now dead model, Terry, had been the face of this cosmetics company for five years. That's right. But she was, she'd now got old. She was probably like 23 or something. (laughs) It was time for her to be replaced and she didn't want to be replaced. And so she had this big row with Sheila. And this is actually, it's it's the most believable backstory out of the three that have been given. However, there is a moment where Sheila says, oh, none of that karate stuff you saw was for show. It was all real. I'm a black belt. And uh, obviously the, the lady who plays Sheila is not a black belt. I'm just going to put it out there right now. And she says that during the argument, she starts showing Terry some of her karate moves. And <laughs> the thing that cracked me up most is after she hits a lamp, she says, if that's not enough, how about this? And then she vaguely kicks at a polystyrene table, <laughs> which breaks. And it made me laugh. Not quite as much as... <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, I think. But still, it did make me laugh a lot. Never gonna be over. <laughs> you got again. <laughs> oh, 
going to commit a crime, a part of the fun of committing a serious crime is doing the full confession, knowing that you're going to get away with it definitely. Absolutely. And all you have to do is dispose of the witnesses in a contraption that will take a while to work. Absolutely. Like, for example, one of those car crushing machines. Thingies. Like one of those car crushing machines. And I think car crushing machines were second only to quicksand as these dangers that were just around every corner in the 70s and 80s. We imagined as children that we, we would be dodging quicksand, we would be having to avoid going into car crashes. Like if you just if your parents left you in the back seat while they went into Sainsbury's, you had to be really careful that you didn't end up in a car crusher. They put David into one of the car crushing machines at the salvage yard, and so we know it's not going to end well for the machine. Well, this is it. It's like, oh no, how's he possibly going to get out of this? Poor little David Banner, he's so small and slight. This machine's going to make mincemeat of him. There's no way he can possibly survive this. And I wasn't sure if I had actually seen this episode and I remembered it, or whether I'm thinking of Superman 3. Clark Kent is put into a car crusher. And you think, oh, that's the end of him, and then it starts to slowly open. David's eyes have gone white, his face is flashing green, he's busting out of those sensible loafers... And then Luferigno rips the roof off the car. Rawr! Yeah. I write rawr a lot in my notes. <laughs> and Luferigno goes, no sir, I don't like it. And then you can clearly see the green paint fading off around the waistband. He takes the gun off the fella and he squishes it and throws it, and throws it away. He throws the baddies in the air. He growls a lot. And he says, rawr, again. And he runs <laughs> off. Uh, and McGee is provided with all the information. He knows that who the real baddies are, and he knows about Jocelyn's corruption and all the murdering. But it's and people's lives have been saved by the Hulk. But he's still like, "I'm gonna get you, Hulk." Yeah. That was a fun episode. I enjoyed it, but I could have done with more Brett. I think so. The, the, the few times he's on screen, he's he's giving good value, but there's just not enough Brett for my tastes. But some Brett is better than none, so I was grateful for the Brett that I got. Well, um, I'm glad that you were pleased. Honestly, I would agree because I was sure that there was more, but maybe uh, it had been, been a couple of years since I last watched The Incredible Hulk. He makes an impression. <laughs> The next episode we watched was The Hulk Breaks Las Vegas. Yeah. And he did. And he certainly did. So could you please explain to us what happened in this episode? This is... This is a different sort of thing. So the last one was a Columbo-style murder mystery where we know exactly who the murderer is going to be. Uh, this one is much more of a thriller, heist sort of thing. Is it a heist? I'm trying to remember what the plot is. It, it's a thriller. It is a, it is a thriller. David is not really anything to do with the plot. He is just sort of unfortunately there and gets roped into the plot that's going on. Oh, that's right, yes. An investigative journalist is has got a big story that's going to take down the mob in Las Vegas. Um, the mob are onto him and his girlfriend, Wanda. But fortunately, Ed's best friend, Jack McGee, is also investi- uh, uh, an investigative uh... journalist. So Ed calls Jack and asks for some help, and Jack flies straight out to Vegas to be there with him. That's right. This one, for some reason, didn't make quite so much of an impression. I, I enjoyed it, but I think it a little bit went in one ear and out of the other. So I was struggling to remember the uh, exact plot. But he's got dirt on corruption, essentially, this journalist. Imagine corruption in Las Vegas. Yeah. Gasp. And so these two journalists are... Uh, getting regularly harassed by the henchman of the big casino boss, who is in no way Donald Trump. No, not at all, not even a little bit. They have the incriminating evidence in a locker and there's a key. What's the woman's name? I didn't write down the name. Wanda. Wanda, that's right. So she says, they keep following me everywhere I go. There they are. Let's just get out of here so we can be safe. We've got all the evidence and Ed's... It's like, oh, we, no, we, we'll just, you know, if you're sure, we've got enough. And then he gets a phone call from the character who isn't Donald Trump saying, look, we'll meet somewhere public. You'll be perfectly safe. We'll talk this over. We'll get this all sorted out. It will benefit both of us. We'll make an arrangement where you leave out the name so you can still have your story. But everyone will be protected. You'll be protected. And Wanda says, no, come on, let's go. Let's just go. And Ed's like, ah, but it's more story. Look, I can... If I secretly record them trying to bribe me, then that's that's more 
dirt. Ed doesn't go for it. So the main baddie says, will you please take care of this man for me? So he runs Ed over. Yeah, so we have the main henchman who runs Ed over, who is played by Don Marshall, who we haven't done Land of the Giants. And I don't really know Land of the Giants, but he's one of the regulars. I used to watch Land of the Giants when I was little, so it will, it will oh, okay. be a thing. And actually, even though he's the henchman, he's the main baddie in this. He does all the stalking and all the following around and all the threatening. During this time, while all of this is going off, David has arrived in Las Vegas and he work, he's working as a shill in a casino. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed in him. Working as a shill, I thought he was like, I thought he was a very moral, upstanding character. Also, he he's destitute, Adam. Well, I guess so. <laughs> and he's learning the ropes from a very nice lady who works there. Are playing this one for real? Mm, no, not really. I think it's a tough game to beat. Believe it. Listen... What's a guy like you doing working for pretzels as a shill? Seems like you could get something better. Oh, just the breaks of a hustler, I guess. Oh, some hustler. You look more like a lawyer, doctor. And she gets him to buy her lunch. She says, buy me lunch, I'm starving. And he says, you're also pushy. Her flirting is incredibly intense. Off-puttingly intense. She just kind of stares at him. I think it's it's intended as a kind of flirty stare, but it's just so full on. It's like, oh no, red flag, red flag. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> bye bye. And then after lunch, he he's walking back to happiness and the casino. Um, unfortunately, he sees that Ed has just been run over, so he rushes off to help because you know he's a doctor. Yes, yes. He doesn't say bruises. He says contusions. Yes. And that's how you know that it's a doctor. And yes, while they're in the ambulance and he is telling the paramedic what to do, Ed gives him the voice recorder to look after it and he says, take this to McGee, no, do take, it for me, take, please. Take it to Jack. Take it, take to, it Jack. to Jack, that's right. Put yes, it in take Jack's it to Jack. hand. Promise Put it in his me. hand personally. Promise you will personally go up to him, look him in the eye, place it in his actual hand with your actual hand. <laughs> Introduce yep. yourself by name. <laughs> Give exactly me a quick what... kiss on the cheek. Yeah, um, and David's like, yeah, sure, why not? Sound, anything, you're badly hurt, I promise I will do anything. Yeah, I don't know anyone called Jack. There's no way no. this could possibly go wrong. <laughs> I mean, everyone in the 70s on TV was called Jack. Yes. So it, it actually could be anyone. So, yes, David leaves the recorder at the reception desk, but... For some reason, he decides that he doesn't trust the receptionist. I mean, he did promise to put it in his hand personally, and if if it's top secret, he might imagine that you know somebody else might try and intercept it. So I think it's reasonable that he doesn't just want to leave it at reception. He wants to make sure he gets it to him. Yes, I, I suppose so. I don't really understand why he was so involved with it, because he didn't know anything about... He doesn't know anything about the story. Because he's an intense and moral man. He calls McGee and says, listen up, there's package down here from a chap called Ed. It's at reception. Please go and pick it up. Jack goes downstairs to try and see him, but David's too smart and he runs off. And I mean... He hides behind a plant. Yes, he he hides behind a very small plant, but he sees that, you know, Jack's got the package and he thinks everything's okay. Let's not worry about that anymore. Let's just carry on with our lives. But unfortunately, it turns out that the baddies in question own the gambling casino that David works at. Don Marshall recognises David and he's like, that's him. That's the guy who was in the ambulance with the journalist. And so they go and give him a bit of a talking to. Yeah, but he gets disciplinary. He's not bothered. He's not scared. He's not afraid. No, he doesn't care, does he? Yeah. He's not betraying his newfound ambulance pal. The main baddie starts beating him up and he throws him down the fake staircase into the darkness. The real baddie's like, huh, have you had enough? Are you ready to talk? And all you hear is this ripping clothing and a vague growl. We know what's going to happen next. You want some more? Have you had enough? You ready to talk? Hey. Where are you? Hey! That's quite a creepy moment where he's looking down the stairs into the shadows and you just see this figure coming into the shadows and we all know who it's going to be yes. but it's still nicely creepy that it's just he's just shrouded in shadows and we're seeing it from Donald Trump's point of view as he emerges and it's like OMG he says 
Who is this green fellow? Yes, he does. And the Hulk says, Rawr! <laughs> and then he runs straight through a crap table. Yeah, he basically breaks Las Vegas at this point. He does. It's a lot of fun, this rampage, watching him just destroy all these gambling accoutrements and things like that. And there is the obligatory comedy Texan there. Dang, got me a winner! Hey, look, everybody! Everybody! Look at that, everybody! Yo! Oh, and it's hilarious because he's wearing a Stetson and has a Texan accent. The only thing he doesn't do is look at the bottle, look at the Hulk, look back at the bottle and vow to quit drinking. I mean, that happens a lot in other episodes, but not in this one. Oh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. This is the moment when watching The Incredible Hulk as a grown-up that I decided that it was the show for me. Because the police says, be on the lookout for a hulking giant. He's seven and a half feet tall. And green as all get out. <laughs> I mean, what a description. Yeah. Not just some get out, all get out. How green is get out? And as soon as I heard this, I was like, yes, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. <laughs> this is the show for me. <laughs> I once dressed up as Disgust from Inside Out for a fancy dress party. And oh, I, I think the I was probably more green. I think you were more green. Hulk. It did suit you, actually, that look. And it's not easy being green, but, you know, some of us can pull it off. <laughs> Me and Lou Ferrigno, I think, are the only two. It does seem like a show that can actually, it's not sticking to one kind of story. So all the no, three episodes not. we watched have very different types of stories, so it can adapt itself. Yeah, that's why it was so, so difficult to choose two episodes, and I ended up having to say that we needed to kind of have a little, a little look at a third one. A show like Columbo or like Monk or something like that, which are very good, and I, I love both of those, and they're very easy to watch, but they're definitely formulaic. Yes. In the best possible way, but you know exactly what you're going to get, you know what's going to happen and how it's going to unwind, and part of the pleasure is seeing that formula but this is something that it's just what situation can we put this man with this condition in and see how he reacts to it and how he can solve it and, and help he's roused he's run off the police don't find him they find david instead in the alleyway half naked again that's just it's how he lives his life just half naked in an alleyway probably the title of his autobiography and they think that he's drunk um, they ask him if he's seen a big green creature and he does look genuinely affronted at this point. <laughs> no, I am not. How, How dare, dare you, you, sir? How dare you ask me that? <laughs> How dare you come into my alleyway where I am sitting here half naked? Good day to you, sir. <laughs> I said good day. <laughs> we were speaking in Battle of the Planets about your favourite joke of the 70s. Mm. This is ridiculous. We get one of those. I'll do it. I, I, I missed it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It. David goes into uh, a mechanic shop and he is, you know, shoeless and shirtless. And he sees a kindly old mechanic who turns around and looks at him and says, I've heard of guys losing their shirts before, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> of course. I'd forgotten about that, but you're right. <laughs> uh, the third most worrisome thing of the 70s and 80s after quicksand and car crashes is probably being buried alive in grit yes and that certainly happens here unlike a minor guest character who is being threatened alongside david banner in this episode it's jack mcgee it's jack mcgee himself yes they have to be in the car together david is very worried about this but then he finds out that jack has been knocked out by the third baddie. He seems more concerned about being recognised than he does about being buried alive in grit. Well, to be fair, he is the Incredible Hulk. That's true. I would be worried if I was the Incredible Hulk or if I was David Banner. Like, oh, what if it doesn't happen this time? What if for some reason, like... You don't get angry enough. What if I'm so reassured by the fact that I'm the Hulk that I actually don't get angry? It becomes a vicious cycle. It's like, oh, I actually don't mind this because I'm the Hulk, so it'll be fine, I'll get out of this. And I don't get angry enough to become the Hulk and I die. I think I think that's spoken by a person who doesn't get angry very often. <laughs> it could be. What if I'm just too phlegmatic to become the Hulk? Yes. I mean, I never worry about not getting angry because <laughs> I know it's going to happen. Whereas I'm like, oh, well, I'm sure tomorrow I won't be on fire. How tiresome. <laughs> Two green hands shoot up out of the rubble. Yeah, that's quite a good shot. Like that Monty Python thing that Terry Gilliam drew. You know, of all the hands with the leaves oh, on. That's right, yes. <laughs> of course. It's the Hulk and he's not happy. He says, Rawr! <laughs> um, Ed in in exactly that tone of voice. And McGee wakes up and he is very scared. 
because he thinks the Hulk's going to kill him. He's frit. He's frit. He's well frit. And the Hulk picks him up and says, rawr, and leaps spectacularly. Yeah, I've forgotten about his flying jumps. They're really good. Oh, it's one hell of a jump. I had a sudden rush of nostalgia seeing his flying jump because... It was it was great, wasn't it? <laughs> it's not done in the comic book style. It's no, done in pur- a straightforward so. TV so. drama. Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. giant rage monsters don't exist. It's kind of portrayed in such a way that they feasibly could, but you probably wouldn't know about it. Yes, it feels like it exists in the same universe as Columbo or Hill Street Blues. <laughs> Maybe not Hill Street Blues, but those those kind of 70s. Yes. They all have a very similar sort of look and Yes, I, li- I like to think texture that to them. Um, Jessica Fletcher could probably bump into the Hulk and figure out what's going on. It does have that kind of littlest hobo thing. Every stop he makes, he makes a new friend. Yeah. Can't stay for long, just turn around and he's gone again. So if you want to join him for a while, come grab your hat, go travel light, that's Hulk style. And the other similarity is that if you make the littlest hobo angry, he turns into an, an enormous Alsatian <laughs> he and does. goes on that's a rampage. Exactly what's happened, yeah. A green one, big one. Yes. <laughs> he turns into the Hand of the Baskervilles. Booyah, full circle. Sherlock Holmes. So yeah, the Hulk... As we have said, it, it's particularly a unique show in that there weren't very many superhero shows at the time. Not in comparison today, where like they are all superhero shows, and they have the Marvel House style. Yes, which this doesn't have. Every single week was such a completely different story. Like I say, it was so difficult to narrow it down. And I kind of wanted to highlight the fact that it was a show that wasn't afraid of tackling really sensitive, hard-hitting subjects. So I asked if we could possibly watch an episode called A Child in Need. Please, could you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was uh, a very different episode and it was quite a tough watch. I mean, for a comic book show... It was fairly full on and it's about uh, a young boy, he's probably about nine or ten and he's being violently abused by his father who has anger management issues and he drinks a lot and he he hits his son and he hits his wife and David is working at the time as the groundskeeper at uh, an elementary school so he becomes aware that one of the boys has always got bruises up his arms and he's got a, a bruise on his face and yeah so it's a whole different tone it never goes into that kind of silly cheesy thing that the others do it, it maintains that seriousness throughout and yeah I did find myself wanting to skip through bits just because it was so tense and full on to watch it was very tense and I thought, like you say, they do keep the tension and they keep the tone very, very serious. Even the times the Hulk shows up to save Mark, the little boy, from his dad. Mark and his mum have both been hit and we've seen that happen. The build-up to the dad freaking out, it takes quite a while and you can see the tension build up. And the, the little boy who plays Mark... Dennis Dimster... He does a really good job. Everyone in this does a really good job. Sally Kirkland plays his mum. Sandy McPeak is the father, and they do a good job, I think, of not making him an outright monster instantly. He seems quite friendly and caring at first. It takes a while before we realise who is who is the abuser out of the parents. So he goes and sees the dad, and the dad is very friendly, very charming, offers David a beer. He is the absolute spitting image of... Ted Roach from The Bill. Yes, he is. And then he goes to see Mark's mum. And Mark's mum is very hostile and tells him off for, you know, interfering and telling her how to bring a child up, etc, etc, etc. And he sees that she's got bruises on her wrists. So he realises that it's actually the dad who is the, the abuser. The Hulk rars. He picks up the dad and throws him through a wall. He gets hold of Mark and runs off with Mark to get him to safety. And this is, I think this is, this is possibly the first time that Dave actually is able to share his secret. Yes, yeah, that he has to kind of swear, swear the little boy to secrecy, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And the boy completely understands and, and gets it. And, and he isn't even scared because there are bigger, scarier things going on in his life. And he just saw that there was somebody even bigger than his dad who could help him yes and i think this sort of repositions the hulk uh, when we see him in the other episodes he is almost like a tool for getting out of these situations and solving these problems and defeating the baddies but in this episode he's a wish fulfillment yes mark says this he says i wish i could do that as well every child who's being bullied wishes that they could either 
go big and beat up the people who are attacking them or they have a friend who will burst into the wall yeah. and will come to their aid. So it's very, it's really effective that it's, it's sort of seen almost from Mark's eye view. As a child, I was abused by my teacher physically and mentally um, and she actively encouraged the other children to be physically abusive of me. If ever I complained about it, if ever I tried to speak up for myself, I'd either get slapped or I would be punished in some way and, and removed from the class. And It was a very, very horrible time. And obviously, when you're very, very small, there was a time in my life when I was very, very small. <laughs> but when you are that little and you are being put through something like that, the hands of, of, of a grown up, you do feel very, very helpless. And you do feel as though maybe it's you, maybe you're the problem, maybe you are. Because Mark was very, very much full of the idea that, you know, it was him when he did things wrong, when he messed up. That was why his dad would fly off into these rages when it was up it was nothing to do with mark at all it was as we find out later on his his dad's having dealing with ptsd of his own due to his own own abuse as a, as a child at the hands of his own father and um, you know the story the story ends happily where the dad is in hospital going on undergoing psychiatric care um and everybody will live happily ever after it's it's a really nice it's a nice ending but from the point of view of a child who's in that place where there is a grown-up being like that to them and making you believe that you are the problem you don't always realize that there's anything wrong until I was a grown-up I didn't realize that what had happened to me was was wrong I just thought I was a particularly bad child but I, I, I apparently wasn't I was quite a nice one watching that and thinking that if at any time any of these awful things that had happened to me and there were an awful lot of really nasty things that happened to me at the hands of the kids and the teachers mm -hmm. if at any point Lou Ferrigno had burst through into the school <laughs> and thrown Mrs. Hughes right to the other end of the school and picked me up and taken me home and left me with my mum and dad. I would have loved that. <laughs> and I just feel like every child who is dealing with that kind of thing deserves to have the Hulk come and save them. And every adult who is treating a child like that deserves everything that the Hulk gives them. Because, yeah, the dad was going through an awful thing and he, he was dealing with his own problems and, yeah, that was really, really bad. But just because you go through something bad doesn't mean that you get to treat other people like that too. I did think it was a it, it was quite a grown-up thing that they did show that he was dealing with his own things and he wasn't just a monster. Yeah. That he had his own problems as well. Yeah, yeah, but he yes. did have a big, big flashback. It was a really powerful moment, I think. <laughs> So we waved our hands as we marched along And the people smiled as we sang our song And the world was saved as they listened to the band And the banner man held the banner high He was ten feet tall and he touched the sky I wish that I could be a banner man Thank you very, very much for sitting through three episodes of The Incredible Hulk for me. I You're really, more than welcome. I really appreciate that, Adam. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening in. As you may know, we have now reached our 2,000 listener mark, so thank you very much for to all of you who have listened in, and especially if you've listened in more than once, because that's been great for bulking up the numbers, so please <laughs> carry on doing that. You know, and also, feel free to tell all your pals about us. We've not got any friends. That's why we do this. Might as well make, make most uh, of yours. If you would like to get in touch with us, you're more than welcome to. Uh, our Twitter account is at retro underscore tube, or you can always email us. Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com, and we are always happy to hear from you. We will always respond to you. One more time, it's rar from me. And have you got a final word? Rar. So we reached the square at the top of the hill, and the music stopped, and we stood quite still, and the people were saved, and the people said, Amen. Then we all got up, and we formed the queue, and the drums went back, and the cornets blew, and we marched right down into the town again. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. 
The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazolowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at 10.99. Look for the pink and white cover.